What is spiritually stirring and awakening? A spiritual awakening presupposes a spiritual condition. Otherwise, it's not an awakening, it's a whole new invention. So a spiritual awakening means that there is something sleeping within us that needs to wake up. doesn't need to be invented, doesn't need to be created or imported, just awakened. It's interesting that the Torah says concerning uh, the observance of Pesach, you should uh, keep these laws and eat the matzah and so on, so that you will remember the day you came out of Egypt. Now that wouldn't be so remarkable were it not for the fact that concerning sukkah, the mitzvah to eat in a sukkah, the Torah says for seven days you should eat in a sukkah so that the, the generations will know that I caused your ancestors to dwell in a sukkah when they left Egypt. So here's the difference between the two commandments. We eat matzah to remember coming out of Egypt, and we sit in a sukkah so that we will know that God housed us in a sukkah when we left Egypt. So we eat matzah to remember, and we eat in a sukkah to know. Now the knowing makes sense. Your future generations should know that God caused you to dwell in sukkahs when you traveled through the desert. Well, the future generation didn't experience the sukkah, so they can't remember it. If you tell your child, we're going to build a sukkah now, and we're going to eat in the sukkah for seven days, the child discovers something he didn't know before. So that makes sense. Observe sukkah so that the future generations will know what happened in the past. How else will they know? you got to tell them, show them. But what does it mean concerning Pesach and matzah where it says, eat the matzah so that you will remember coming out of Egypt? But you didn't come out of Egypt. It was a long time ago. So you can't remember it, you can only know about it. So why the different instruction? To remember and to know. Good question. You have a better question? (laughs) Oh, okay. There are different kinds of events in our past. There are events that we read about that inform us of various interesting things that happened in our history. But those events need to be taught, need to be related to the next generation because it's news to them. The event was an ordinary one. If you weren't there, then you weren't there. Then you didn't experience it. So the best you can do is to hear about it, learn about it, be informed. But there are other experiences in our history that were pivotal. They had such an impact on us that we have never been the same since. It became part of our national character. Of course, standing at Mount Sinai was one of those events. We came away from Mount Sinai permanently changed because, you know, speaking to God face-to-face leaves an impression, (laughs) as you might expect. Now, that impression might be buried or it might be covered with all sorts of junk, but it can't go away. In fact, the Talmud says, the Gemara says that before the giving of the Torah, Jews were the most 
aggressive and uh, pushy nation in the world. Nothing has changed? <laughs> but because of the event at Sinai, we have become bashful. I know, if you go back to Israel, it changes. So there's a certain humility that Mount Sinai, the experience, engraved on our psyches so that we don't have that chutzpah that we used to have. And that's permanent. Another such event that left a permanent impression on our collective soul is the coming out of Egypt. And that's why the Torah can tell us, eat matzah so that you will remember coming out of Egypt. Because you carry that memory. Everyone does. All you need to do is refresh it. So it's not enough to know that your ancestors came out of Egypt. You have to remember the experience of coming out of Egypt because it's ingrained in your soul. And that might be the meaning of what we say in the Haggadah, that it's not enough. It's not only our ancestors who God redeemed from slavery, but it's us and our children and all generations, and we are obligated to experience the coming out of Egypt as if we ourselves had been taken out of slavery. Now, what, are we playing games? We're going to make believe as if we ourselves came out of Egypt? There are no games in the Torah, and there are no make-believes or as-ifs. So if Torah says you should experience yourself coming out of Egypt, it means that you can actually do that. And the reason you can do that is because it was one of those events that leaves an impression on all future souls. So that on Pesach, we really do experience a freedom from enslavement, if we do it right. So that's the difference between remembering and knowing. You can remember an event if it's engraved in your soul. If not, you learn about it. So a spiritual awakening would mean stirring those qualities that we have in our soul that need a little reminder, a little refresher, or something like that. And that's why there is no process, there is no ritual, there is no formula for a Jew who hasn't observed any commandments and now wants to, let's say, observe Shabbos and keep Shabbos holy, you would imagine that there would need to be some kind of initiation, some kind of a process to go from non-observant to observant, at least pay some dues or something. <laughs> but there, there isn't. Because Shabbos is in your soul all along. You don't have to acquire it. You don't have to be initiated into it. It's been waiting. It's been dormant. So anytime you're ready to do it, it's just a reminder. You remember who you are, and that's who you are. It's not a change. On the contrary, it's going back to who we naturally are. Just forgot for a while. There's some very interesting thoughts on the weeks between Pesach and Shavuos, which is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. There are 50 days. There were 50 days of travel between Egypt and Mount Sinai. And uh, we count those days 
It's literally a commandment. Each of the 50 days has a mitzvah to count that day, to mark the day. And we actually make a blessing and we say today is the uh, 14th day of the counting, which is two weeks into the Omer, into the... The countdown is a, is a form of uh, purification because going from the ugliness of Egypt, of slavery, to the holiness of Torah, you gotta, you got to clean up your act. And how do you clean up your act? Well, there are 49 considerations, 49 issues that you need to consider and clean up in order to get ready for receiving the Torah. These 49 qualities really are a set of seven, each one composed of seven. So you have 49. The seven are basically the seven emotions which the soul has, which are a reflection of the seven attributes with which God creates the world. So the first attribute that God used in creating the world was the attribute of kindness, chesed. The second attribute was the attribute of gvura, which means discipline, judgment. The third was teferis, which means compassion or harmony, harmony between kindness and judgment. So you have black and white and some blend so that there's a harmony and not friction between the two. We have those same attributes in our soul, and we need to consider how they're doing. So we spend a week considering our kindness. What is the nature or the quality of your kindness? Is it lacking? Is it properly uh, guided? Is it being applied correctly? Are you expressing it or are you only feeling it? I mean, there are many considerations. And that's the seven details within kindness. The next week is judgment and discipline. And again, it has seven components. You have to examine them. Is your judgment too harsh? Is it insufficient? Is it directed properly? Are you consistent? in your discipline, or those are the, the components. So you have kindness within kindness, you have severity or judgment within kindness, you have compassion within kindness, you have perseverance within kindness, you have verbal expression of kindness, seven different aspects of kindness. And the same with judgment, and the same with compassion, and so on. So thinking about these attributes brings up an interesting uh, subject. The Torah is divided into five books, or the first five books, the Chumash. One of the ways of, of understanding this division, getting kind of a bird's eye view, is that each of the five books represents divine attributes. So to cut to the chase, the first book, Bereshis, or Genesis, is an expression of divine Wisdom, intellect. Intellect is called the father or the mother because the uh, intellect gives birth to the emotions. So the attributes of 
wisdom and knowledge are called the parents. So the first book of Torah, of course, expresses God's wisdom and knowledge. But when you translate that into the physical, it becomes mothers and fathers. And so the first book of Torah is only about our mothers and fathers. There are very few commandments in the first book. It's just the story of our mothers and fathers. Adam and Eve, Avraham and Sarah, Yitzhak and Rivka, Yaakov and all his wives, and their children. So that's the first book. It's the book of who we are, the parents. The second book is the book of kindness, Exodus, Shmos, the book of kindness. Kindness means a giving, a generous giving. Now, giving usually goes from a higher place to a lower place. It flows downwards. Of course, with God, all God's kindness comes from above downward. Blessings from heaven, pennies from heaven. They come downwards because kindness flows downward. The person who knows more shares with the person who knows less. The richer person gives to the poor person and so on. So it's always a downward flow. And that's why in the second book of Torah, what do we read? God came down to Mount Sinai. God said, build me a tabernacle, build me a mishkan, and I will come down and dwell in it. It was all about the downward process of God coming to us. Even the Exodus, we say in the Haggadah over and over again, God came to Egypt to take us out. We were not chasing him. He came to take us out. So it's all a matter of a downward flow from heaven to earth. The third book, the one we're reading now, is the opposite direction. It's the judgment, it's the discipline, and that represents a movement from below upwards, a rising, an elevation, where the lower level rises to the higher level. So they're opposite directions. Kindness goes downwards, judgment or severity goes upwards. And of course, you need both if we're going to have true unity. If God and his world are going to be one, it's got to be a two-way street. God has to come down, but the world also has to rise upwards. And so what do we read about in Leviticus, in, in this third book of Torah, in Vayikra? We read about sacrifices. What is a sacrifice? A person takes a goat, just an ordinary animal, part of his wealth, possession, property, brings it to the temple, and offers it up on the altar, and it becomes holy. It's literally consumed by the fire on the altar, and it, it becomes spiritual. That's what the whole book is about. How to raise the world to a higher level. How to bring the ordinary up to a higher level of godliness and holiness. In this view, everything starts to make a lot of sense. There are different stories in Torah. And they appear in uh, seemingly uh, random placement. So in this third book of Torah, we read about the laws of kosher. Which animals are kosher and which are not? Why is it in this book? 
Why isn't it in the previous book? The reason is because in the book where it tells you how to elevate that which is ordinary and bring it closer to God, it has to tell you which things you can't elevate. Don't try. So eating, very much like sacrificing, is a process by which the animal, the meat, becomes human. You elevate it to a higher level. It belonged to the animal kingdom, but when you consume it and digest it and process it and it becomes your flesh and blood, now it's human. So you've elevated it to a higher level. Of course, if the human is also serving God, then that meat becomes part of the service of God. So now you've really elevated it from being an animal to being godly. So in this book of elevating, the Torah has to tell you, don't try to do this with pork, it's not going to happen. So if you eat pork and then want to serve God, it won't work. The pork is not going to become godly. That's what non-kosher means. It means it is not available for elevation. So even if you eat it with all the right intentions, it's not going to work. On the other hand, in the same book of Torah, we have the story of the two sons of Aaron who got so excited about the uh, Mishkan that they ran in there and got carried away to such a degree that they died. They expired from the holiness. And God says, I, I don't want that. That's not what I mean by elevate. I don't mean die. You want to strive to get higher, but not to extinguish the flame. So why does that appear in this book? This is a book about how to raise the world to a higher level. So it's got to tell you how not to do it. Don't do it to such a degree that you leave your body behind. And there are certain things you don't try to raise because they're just not available for elevation, like the non-kosher animals. What is the difference between kindness, which comes from above downward, and judgment or severity that goes from below upwards? There's a huge difference. Kindness means that that which is above should also come down to the levels below. And that's how the higher and the lower become united because they share. Whatever is above should also come down below. It's like water flowing down a mountain. It doesn't want to stay up there alone. It wants to be down at the bottom too. So kindness moves from one extreme to the other because it wants to include the other. So that the wealthy person, ideally, wants everyone to be rich. Maybe not as rich as him, but richer. So the wealth gets spread, gets shared. That's not how the other process works. When you rise to a higher level, it's not that the lower level wants to be high also, or what is below should also be above. That's not always a good idea. What's below should stay below. So the process of going from below upwards, the rising process, is called judgment because the way that it's done is by rejecting what is low in favor of what is high. So you see the difference. Kindness is inclusive. 
It starts off above, but it ends up below also. Also. So the rich man doesn't want to become poor. He wants the poor man to become rich, like him. The teacher doesn't want to give away all his knowledge and remain brainless. He wants that everyone else should know what he knows. That's the kindness process from above downwards. But the judgment is where you find what is below unacceptable and you reject it in favor of something higher. That's the difference between the second and third book of Torah. The second book of Torah talks about how godliness can be everywhere. Why not? The third book of Torah says, if you really want to be kind, you got to get rid of some of the junk. You have to reject that which is unholy in order to get to the holy. That's called sacrificing. And that's why the entire third book of Torah is about sacrifices. Sacrificing means I reject this in favor of that. I give this up in order to have something better. But if I'm content with what I have, then I don't rise. So a person can't say, I want to remain as selfish as I am, but I also want to be a tzaddik. I mean, yeah, it's not going to happen. You can't be selfishly generous. So you, got to, you have to give something up. You have to reject something in order to get to something better. And that's why it's called judgment, because it distinguishes. It says no to this and yes to that. Generally, kindness is considered a masculine trait, and judgment is considered a feminine trait, which explains a very interesting phenomenon. Why is it that when a man and a woman get married, the man retains his name, the woman changes her name? Who started that? <laughs> Where did that come from? It's not a commandment in the Torah. In fact, family names didn't even exist until recently. So how do you become Mrs. Jackson? Who started that? And it's pretty universal. The difference between kindness and judgment is kindness shares what it has. I give you my name. My name is Jackson. Your name can be Jackson too if you marry me. The woman, on the other hand, says, whatever name I had is gone. I'm starting something new. So the male represents kindness and the female represents judgment. Even motherhood and fatherhood are different in the same fashion. The father doesn't really give up anything to become a father. He simply makes another one of himself. He reproduces himself. A mother gives up everything beginning with sleep. <laughs> Gives up her body, her appetite, her life, basically. So it's give up one thing in order to be something else. Whereas the father doesn't give up. He shares what he has. This leads us to another interesting thing. What is the ultimate perfection or the ultimate reward the ultimate utopian world that we should be looking forward to. We have two opinions. We have the opinion of Rambam, Rab Moshe, the son of Maimon, and we have the opinion of another sage, Ramban, Moshe, the son of Nachman. 
They're known as Maimonides and Nachmanides. Rambam says that Mashiach will come and the world will become very good. People will be good, nations will be good, nature will be good. It's going to be wonderful. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the prophet says. That means that the uh, bloodthirsty, warlike nations will become like lambs, peaceful, docile. The snake will not harm, or the beasts will not harm. That means that those nations who have, throughout history, been dangerous and, and predatory, and so on, they, they won't. The lion will eat straw with the cow. They won't hunt each other. They won't kill each other. So, literally, the wolf will lie down with the lamb means those nations who have been anti-Semitic will not, because we are the lamb. And uh, the lion will eat straw like the cow means that they won't harm each other. There will be total peace in the world. Now, some people... some of the sages were very uncomfortable with Rambam's interpretation because there's no reason to interpret those verses when they can be taken literally. The wolf, the animal that is a wolf, will change its stripes, so to speak, and it will live in peace with the lamb. Why interpret it to mean nations who are wolf-like? Rambam says, don't, don't even think like that. Nature will not change. Only morality will change. Everyone will be moral. Because we will have reached the maximum godliness that human beings are capable of without changing our, our nature, without becoming angels. So we will still be human. There will still be death after Mashiach comes. But life will be good. Life will be so good that people will live to be a thousand years old. Why? Well, if there's no stress, then there's no disease. If there's no war, then you don't die young. So the reason we die young is because there's too much stress, too much worry, too much competition, too much, and it, it wears away at us, and it weakens us. But when the world becomes moral and there is no jealousy and there is no competition and you're not fighting to succeed because life will be easier, well, if life is easier, you're going to live longer. That's not a miracle. That's natural. Now, Rambam argues this very strongly. He makes a strong point of saying, it will not be unnatural. It will only be good. Then Rambam says, that period will last about a thousand years, and then, then it's all over. Then the physical body no longer exists, and we go into the ultimate utopian stage where there is no body, there is no food, there is no eating, there is no sleeping. We become completely spiritual. And then we can receive the greatest amount of reward because we're not limited by our bodies. And that's what we mean when we say, Olam Haba.
the world to come. Rambam says the world to come has nothing in common with this world. It's a completely different thing. So the world as we know it today is immoral. In the time of Mashiach, the world will be perfectly moral. In the world to come, the world will no longer be physical. It's almost like saying we will have become souls. We will no longer be bodies. That's Rambam. Ramban doesn't understand. He disagrees and he asks many questions and brings many proofs to the contrary. That in the, in the prophets and in the sages, we are told over and over again that uh, the world to come will be physical. One of the strong arguments is, it says about the, the world to come, one of the blessings, one of the great things that's going to happen in the world to come is that others will tend your sheep. That doesn't sound like souls. What are you going to need sheep for? So Ramban says, the ultimate reward, the ultimate utopian existence is in the body. And he asks the following question. If Rambam really believes that there is going to be no miracles and no changes in nature, what is resurrection? That's not a miracle? The dead will get out of their graves and this is natural? Rambam says that this resurrection of the dead is temporary. It'll be good for a thousand years, but then we shed the body permanently and we remain forever as souls. Ramban says, that already happens today. <laughs> Every time a person dies, he sheds his body and remains a soul. This is not the world to come. This is now. So what's the world to come? And so they argue. According to Ramban, the ultimate godliness is experienced by the body. And after the resurrection, the body will never die again. What's the point? <laughs> it's like the comedian who was getting along in years, and they said, you know, uh, do you ever think of dying? He says, no, why? It's been done. <laughs> Nothing exciting about that. So if the body has already died and now it's resurrected, where is it going to die again? What's the point of that? So after resurrection, the body never dies again. And if you wonder, how could this be? How could a physical body be that holy? The answer is, don't you know the story of Eliyahu? Eliyahu died without leaving his body. His body went to heaven with his soul. So you see, a body can be as holy as a soul. It doesn't have to die. So in the world to come, everyone will be as holy as Eliyahu. Now, it says that in the world to come, there will be no eating and no drinking. See, there'll be no body. He says, no. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't eat and he didn't drink. He still had a body. So when you have so much nourishment from the spiritual, when you're so excited by your godly experience, your body doesn't need to eat. But it doesn't die. It's nourished by your excitement. 
after Mashiach, in the world to come, godliness will be so satisfying, it'll be so filling, that we won't have to eat. That doesn't mean there won't be a body. So who's right? According to Hasidus, according to the teachings of the Rebbe's, Ramban is correct. The ultimate utopian condition is body and soul. Resurrection means the body is reborn or recomposed because it decomposes. It recomposes in such a fashion that it can never die again. That's the world to come. Now, why Rambam doesn't see it that way, we don't really have a good explanation. But in some of Rambam's writings, he mentions that what he says about the world remaining natural and not undergoing any great changes, he says that's not the final word. It's possible that there will be changes. So he leaves open the possibility that there will be significant changes in the way the body functions or lives or so on. But to explain it at least a little bit, Rambam was not just a scholar or a teacher, a rabbi, a doctor. His soul had a particular purpose to which he was devoted thoroughly and completely. What was his purpose? It's like saying, what was the purpose of Moshe as compared to the purpose of King David? They had different functions. David was not supposed to be a great teacher. He was supposed to be a great king. And Moshe was not supposed to be a great king. He was supposed to be a great teacher. Different souls, different purposes, different missions, and so on. Rambam saw as his mission his soul's mission, bringing God down to earth, explaining the unexplainable, making Torah accessible to everyone, showing how divine teachings can be understood by human minds. That's why he's called a philosopher. His job was to bring the Torah down so that everyone has access to it. And that's the role of a codifier. He didn't philosophize, he didn't analyze, he didn't debate. He gave you the final word, the conclusion, the summary. He brought it all together, he brought it all down. In this way, he was very similar to Moshe. Ramban, on the other hand, his soul was of a different quality. His mission in life was to elevate, to refine, to cut away the garbage and release or reveal the diamonds, like the difference between kindness and judgment. So we might say Rambam was kindness, flowing from above downward. He brought Torah down. He explained things so that they were understandable to all. He summarized things so that they wouldn't be too complicated. He brought things down. Ramban was the opposite. He was severity, judgment. 
He raised the world. He raised people to a higher level. Now, when you bring godliness down to the world, what's going to happen? If enough godliness comes into the world, the world will become very good. And what happens after that? You bring more godliness down into the world, it'll stop being physical. It'll be so absorbed into the godly that uh, it'll, it'll stop being, it will be godly. If the soul reveals itself completely to the body, what's going to happen? The body will become soul. It'll be so overwhelmed, so saturated, it'll become soul. It won't be a body anymore. That's the natural consequence of bringing it all down. You bring down to the lower level that which is on the higher level. Well, the lower level is not low anymore. It stops being physical. It stops being limited. It stops being finite. And that's why Rambam has to come to the conclusion that in the final stage of history, there will be no body. Because if it's a body, then it hasn't yet absorbed the soul. It hasn't gotten the fullest measure and dose of holiness. Because if it got the full measure, it would become holy. It would stop being a body. Ramban says, what do you think we've been doing for 5,000 years? We are preparing the world that the world, the physical, the finite condition, can absorb all the godliness there is and still be finite. What is the purpose of creation? If God wants a heavenly condition, he created heaven. But he was not content and went on to create earth. And then earth is going to go back to being heaven? What was the point? In the end, we will, be call, we will all become angels? He has angels. Angels were created before we were. So if, he, if what he wants is angels, <laughs> why does he bother with us? Obviously, when he creates a physical world, he wants a physical world to be godly. Not to undo the physical. Not to lose it in the end, but to include it. That the physical should be included in the holiness. Well, how do you do that? The way you do that is you get rid of the ugly part of the physical and retain the good part. The good part in the physical can absorb all the holiness in the world and not be destroyed by it. Because the good part in the physical is not a contradiction to godliness. So if godliness comes down into this world, well, the ungodly's got to go. They're incompatible. But that doesn't mean that the physical has to go. Because the physical is not all ungodly. So you want animals to be holy? Well, fine. Eliminate the pig. And the grasshoppers or whatever. The creepy crawly stuff. Don't eat that. The rest is good. The rest can become holy. You want wealth to be godly? Well, fine. Give away 10% so that you're not greedy. The rest is fine. So if you cut away the part that is incompatible with holiness, 
The rest can stay physical and be as holy as you want. So Ramban says, in the end, in the end, the good part of the physical will remain forever. Of course, we'll cut away some of the, some of the junk stuff. And that's taking 5,000 years. It's like the butcher cutting away the fat. You don't throw out the whole steak. You cut away the bad part and you make the rest holy. Now, certainly, Rambam will agree. If we cut away the unholy, well, yeah, sure. But that's not my job. My job is to bring down the godliness. So I got to tell you what's going to happen if you follow my advice. We will all turn into souls. On the other hand, it's possible that it will, you see Rambam says, it's possible that it'll end up the other way. What do you mean it's possible? If you cut away the unholy and you leave the good part of the physical, well, yeah, sure, well, then you can stay in your body. But that's not my job. My job is to bring holiness. Cutting away the unholy, that's the other guy's job. So Hasidus says that Ramban is right, not because Rambam is wrong, but because we now see, since the time of Rambam, who lived 800 years ago, what have we been doing? What has been the Jewish experience? Have we had new revelations? Has God come down to Mount Sinai again? No, but everything we thought we needed and had was taken away. Since Rambam's times, we've had the Inquisition, the Crusades, Holocausts, blood libels, pogroms, uh, <laughs> intifadas, uh, ghettos, pales of settlement. Basically, we were stripped of everything. You can't have your own country, you can't have your own language, you can't have your own customs, you can't have your own foods, you can't have your own real estate, you can't live here, you can't look there, you can't, can't touch this, you can't touch that. Everything was taken away. And we're still Jewish. <laughs> well, in that case, you can stay in your body. The body has been purified. Perhaps Rambam was hoping that that wouldn't happen because it's been a very ugly chapter of history, these 800 years. So maybe Rambam was lobbying that that not happen. And if that doesn't happen, well, then there's going to be so much godliness, we're all going to turn into souls, and that will be the utopian condition. But it didn't turn out that way. So we have elevated the world by giving up everything and not losing our soul. So now the physical world is ready to absorb the godliness without disappearing. We've paid the price. So the body, the physical condition that has suffered so much in these last 800 years, the physical condition now deserves to be rewarded, not just the soul. Make sense? One other way of resolving this whole thing 
is by simply saying, Rambam says nothing unnatural is going to happen. How about the fact that we will be resurrected and live forever? Rambam says that's not unnatural. That's the way it was supposed to be in the first place. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them permanent to live forever. Now they went and they ate from the tree. I mean, who, you know, who, who are you going to blame for that? So eating from the tree messed up the plan. One of the things that's going to happen after Mashiach comes in the world to come is that every tree will give fruits. There will be no fruitless tree. Well, that's a miracle. No, it's not. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Why are there trees that don't have fruits? Because they ate from the tree. They ruined it. In other words, dying is unnatural. So now we're left with only one thing. (laughs) Only taxes. Not even death is for sure. Because it's unnatural. Trees without fruit? That's a messed up world. That's not natural. Labor pains in giving birth? Who messed that up? Because they ate from the tree. So what's going to happen after Mashiach comes? Childbirth will be painless. So we'll give birth every day. Why not? (laughs) So when Rambam says nothing unnatural is going to happen, he means nothing unnatural in creation. In history? Yeah, it's going to be very different. It's not going to be like it has been. It's going to be like it was meant to be before we messed it up. And that's natural. So when we stop sinning and we have paid our dues for that, for that tree incident, <laughs> then it's only natural that we will stop dying. We'll stop suffering. It's fixed. So we go back to our true nature. And our true nature is we are created in God's image. That doesn't die. The world was created to be a garden. Well, then there should be no trees without fruit. And being fruitful and multiplying is a mitzvah. (laughs) Why should it hurt? So now the question is, if we're going to live forever, what are we going to do all day? (laughs) You won't have to work for a living. You're never going to die. What are we going to do? It can't be that we will stagnate. That's not holy and that's not godly. In holiness, there's constant growth and constant increase. So if we live forever and everybody's good, maybe that's why it's called the world to come. You've got to wait and see. <laughs> we can't imagine it today because it's a world to come. It's not a world we're familiar with. But it is the ultimate holiness, godliness, goodness, and so on. So I guess if we're going to live forever, we will also be able to grow forever. If life can be endless, why can't growth? If we will be infinitely old, we'll also be infinitely smart. And infinite can go on forever. Anyway, we'll work it out. (laughs) When the time comes, we'll, we'll work it out.
In the meantime, we have to get into the days of Moshiach. And that means no change in nature, but a change in morality. And that we have to do. One by one, step by step, mitzvah by mitzvah, bring about a change in the morality of the world. Sounds like you agree. I'm in the counting of the Omer. We're entering the third week. It is the week of compassion. So this week, every day, we look at our compassion. Is our compassion generous? Is it with judgment? Is our compassion compassionate? Is our compassion lasting? Do we persevere? Is our compassion humble? These are the seven considerations within compassion. The next week will be perseverance. Do you persevere kindly? Some people, if they're going to persevere, you better watch out. When they get stubborn, they get nasty. (laughs) So persevering is good, but not if you're going to be mean about it. So you've got to check your perseverance. Does it have kindness to it? Does it have good judgment to it? Do you persevere when you're not supposed to? Just out of mean-spiritedness. Does your perseverance have compassion to it? You're determined to do something, but if it's hurting somebody else, will you be compassionate about it? Then there's persevering in your perseverance. Then there's the humility of your perseverance. And then there's the expression of your perseverance. So each attribute is examined from seven directions and whatever needs fixing you fix it whatever needs increasing you increase it whatever needs to be rejected you reject it and you're given one day no lengthy analyses yes or no good no good next we only got 50 days we got to get ready but that way we can absorb the Torah without giving up our physical existence. Because if you clean it up, then it doesn't have to go.